Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, um, you know us. You know uh, our need. You know that apart from you, we are in darkness. So, Lord, I pray for all of us uh, that you, by your Spirit, would shine your light upon our hearts that we might see the glory of what this passage is telling us and that we might be changed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder if you know what it's like to have something right in front of you and yet not to see it at all. When I was a youth pastor many years ago, uh, I took our, our youth group to, on a retreat to this old house that was kind of in the middle of nowhere. It was a big house, lots of rooms, and being in the middle of nowhere meant when you shut off the lights, it got really dark, which meant it was great 
for sardines. I don't know if you guys know what sardines is. It's kind of like an inverse hide-and-seek where one person hides and the rest run around trying to find that person, and then when you find the person, you hide with them, and then it gets really kind of crowded in one spot. Why? That's why it's called sardines. But the fun thing about the darkness, or some people might say the, the painful thing about the darkness, is you really can't see what's in front of you. And so if you're moving quickly, and we're not really that accustomed to moving quickly in the darkness, there can be, say, hypothetically, a dresser right in front of you that you just crash right into because it's big, but it's invisible because there is no light. You know, it seems to me that sometimes there are things like that in our lives where they're just right in front of us and it just feels like we can't see. Do you you know what that's like? Maybe for you, someone's trying to explain something in math or science and it's just so obvious to them and they say, look, it's clear, and they keep on telling you and you just don't see it. Or maybe sometimes there's something that we know is happening that we should feel something about. Like, you know, we we hear about an earthquake where thousands of people die, and we know that that should matter deeply to us, and and yet we feel like this kind of disconnection. It's right in front of us, and yet we have no real awareness of it. It's it's like we are in darkness. Something big is in front of us, and yet we cannot see it at all. If you know what I'm talking about, if you know that feeling at all, hold on to that because I think that's how we're supposed to understand what's going on with our passage this morning. We have one of the glorious accounts of the risen Jesus appearing, and yet our characters, and especially the one main character that this focus on, Mary Magdalene, does not see the glory that is directly in front of her. And I think the question that this passage is meant to ask you and to ask me is, are we like her? Is it possible that that the glorious resurrection is right in front of us, and yet to this point we don't really see it? Are we in darkness? So our passage focuses, as I said, on Mary Magdalene, a woman we don't know much about except for the fact that she has been fundamentally transformed by Jesus. We're told elsewhere that she was once someone who was possessed by demons, which of course I don't know what that's like, but I can only imagine the shame and the darkness, and then Jesus came and brought her out. And from that moment onward, she has been devoted to Jesus unlike almost any other, even to the point when when Jesus goes to the cross and every other disciple seems to be terrified and flee, she is there at the foot of the cross seeing his utter humiliation, seeing him breathing out his last in exhaustion, quietly identifying with the one who has been rejected. And now we see on, on Sunday morning her seeking to maybe have one final expression of devotion to Jesus by going to Jesus, presumably to anoint Jesus with spices, one final way of honoring him. And it's not hard for us to try to imagine what what her frame of mind must be like. She is probably too distraught to have been able to sleep, and yet too exhausted to have much energy, and yet this is the one thing she knows she can do. And so you can just imagine her just kind of like her head down while it's quiet, maybe only birds, no one else is awake, just one step in front of the other as she's slowly kind of walking through the village, making it to the outskirts. In the quiet of the morning, she looks and she does not understand what she is seeing because she's finally come to the tomb that she knows is where Jesus was laid. But this enormous stone that that is heavy has been moved and the tomb is now open. And as she draws closer to it, she sees that it is, it's empty. 
Now, again, we know, we know this story, right? We know where this goes. We know that there's something just glorious that is being, being signified here, but not her. She, she's bewildered. She's terrified. She, she runs back to tell the disciples. And I think we can actually get a pretty good sense of what her mindset is by what she says. Did you, did you hear? The, she, she says this, you'll see, repeatedly. They have taken the Lord, and I don't know where they have put him. Think about what she's saying. Notice she still calls him Lord. Even even though she has seen him on a cross, even though he has died, he is still her Lord. She will be devoted to him to the last. She is going to spend all of her life honoring his memory because he was the one who stood for all that is good and all that is right. And yet, notice what she says. They have taken my Lord. What kind of a Lord is taken and hidden? Only a Lord who's been defeated. Only a Lord who's failed. Who's the they? Is she talking about the Romans? Is she talking about the Jewish leaders? I don't think she even knows. It's just them. It's it's all these forces that have been against Jesus, and, and it just seems like Jesus was not enough. That as glorious as Jesus was, he was not enough to overcome the evil, not enough to withstand human cruelty, not enough to make the injustices that this world is filled with right. He just wasn't enough. And I wonder, as we just pause to think about this mindset, how many of us actually can identify with Mary? Perhaps we, we seek to be hopeful people. We, we, we want to be positive and optimistic. We want to keep holding on to this belief that, that good can triumph over evil. Perhaps we even, like Mary, call Jesus Lord. And yet, if we're honest in the depths of our heart, it sometimes feels like it's just not enough. Like the evil is just too big. The brokenness is just too broken. I mean, how many of us, when we heard a few weeks ago this, this terrible news about what took place in Nashville at that school, first were horrified and then grieved and then felt numb and hopeless? It just keeps happening. There is no hope for it to change, it feels like. There is no hope that we might feel for us to be able to protect our own family, our own selves. Just the world is too dark and there is not enough. It is hard to feel hope. And that is Mary. And so as, as she's gone to the disciples, the disciples go back and Peter and John run in and they see, yes, this tomb is empty, But strangely, it still has the expensive grave clothes that any thief would take. And they leave bewildered. And she just stays there, weeping. It's the final insult. Not only have they taken his life, but now they have taken his body. It feels like they have utterly effaced him from the world so that he is no more, and she is just sobbing. And through her tears, as she's standing in front of the tomb, she she sees something that does not compute. As she looks inside, there are 
two men sitting in the tomb. They're in white. John tells us that they're angels, but, but Mary doesn't see that. And as she, she peers, like steps down into the tomb, they look at her and have a conversation as if it's the most normal thing in the world to be talking in Jesus' tomb. And they say, woman, why are you weeping? And you would think this might be the moment, right? Like this might be something that could kind of jog or something so strange as this to help her to realize, wait a second, maybe something beautiful, maybe something extraordinary is happening. But no, it's just something she can't have any access to. It's right in front of her, but she can't see it. And so what does she do? She says exactly the same. They said, they have taken my Lord and I don't know where they have put him. And then after that, bewildered, not seeing, we're told that she turns around. Perhaps she's now going to try to look for the body of Jesus. And, and she sees this man who is strangely right behind her now in front of her, which I imagine probably felt a little disturbing, maybe a little creepy, because she doesn't recognize him. But he's looking at her, and we know that it's Jesus. But she doesn't. She, she thinks... She thinks he's the gardener, which is the strangest thing if you think for hundreds and hundreds of hours and days, he, she has walked with Jesus, she has listened to Jesus, she has seen Jesus perform miracles, and yet he is right in front of her, and she can't see. And, and, and Jesus speaks to her and says, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? And... and and Mary says, for me, one of the most ironic moments of our entire passage. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now, just think of this. She is implicitly, or not even implicitly, explicitly, kind of charging this man with taking Jesus out of the tomb. Which he kind of has. <laughs> and then she is saying... If you could tell me where Jesus is, I will take him and put him back in the tomb. She's missing it. She just, she just can't see. You know, oftentimes on Easter Sunday, um, preachers such as myself will, will try to spend some time just considering just the extraordinary, significant weight of the evidence of, of, of the reality of what we're talking about. Uh, reminding us of just think about what the significance of the empty tomb is. If Jesus has not risen, where is his body? Of talking about the witnesses, people who saw the risen Jesus and were willing to die for that testimony. How do we make sense of it unless Jesus rose again? Of thinking about this extraordinary explosion of Christianity. How in the world could that happen if it was just a failed, crucified revolutionary? No, there is something more than this. We, it's, it's valuable for us. I, I have often preached that myself because we need to know this is not just some inspirational story. This really happened. And yet, consider what we see here with Mary. Mary has all of that. She has stepped into the empty tomb. She has not just heard witnesses, she has heard angels speak to her. And more than any of that, she has seen the risen Jesus speak to her. And yet even still, she doesn't see any of it. 
she's in darkness. She's confused, and, and in darkness, she has hopelessness, because that's how darkness feels, doesn't it? I mean, how many of you, certainly this is true of me, sometimes if you wake up at two or three in the morning and there's something that's been troubling you, you just start spiraling out of control, and it just feels like it's nothing but dark and, and hopelessness. That's her right now. She cannot see, and I think we are meant to see something really important here, that it is entirely possible to have all the facts of Easter and yet not to see. It's entirely possible to know about the empty tomb and the witness, and maybe even at an intellectual level, to recognize, yeah, I think something happened. And yet as we go through the next day, we live as if nothing is different. We live as life is just a series of getting things done, trying to make it through to the end without any real sense of, hopeless, of hope. It is entirely possible to be like Mary and to have everything right in front of us and just not to see it because we are in darkness and we need light. And what I find to be perhaps the most surprising detail of this entire passage is how light breaks through to Mary. It's not the evidence. It's not the miracles. It's not even seeing Jesus in front of her that does it. What is it that breaks through? It is something as simple and extraordinary as love. Because what does Jesus do as she is blind to him? She says, he says a single word, Mary. He calls her by name. A name is a simple, small thing, right? Just a, usually a couple syllables, maybe three. But when someone calls you by name in that moment, in, with that person, you are now distinguished from the millions of anonymous people. You in that moment seem, feel seen. You feel known. And one of the things that we see again and again about Jesus is that Jesus knows. He knows people. At the very beginning of his ministry, Nathaniel, somebody he's never met, comes to him and he says, look, I see a man who is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel is stunned and he says, how do you know me? Later on, he will meet this outcast Samaritan woman and after this conversation, she goes excited and says, come see the person that told me everything I ever did. Sometimes Jesus will actually give someone a new name because he sees them in a way no one else has seen them before. Simon, I'm going to call you Peter because you are a rock, even if you don't see it yet. Again and again, even as people try to name Jesus and always get it wrong, they never categorize Jesus right. He's beyond their understandings. Jesus, on the other hand, knows. He sees. And here in this moment, he names Mary and shows that he loves her. Mary, he's saying, Mary, it's me. I'm the one who sees you. I'm the one who loves you. You don't need to cry anymore. And, and in that moment where Mary experiences just this sign of the love of Jesus. It's like the clouds have broken open and the sun brilliantly shines through and she sees. 
Rabboni, she says, teacher, you are Jesus. You are alive. In that moment, everything changes for her. In that moment, she moves from darkness into light because she knows that she is loved. Now, this isn't the only time this is going to happen. Later on this day, we're going to see a very similar story where two men will be leaving Jerusalem, people who are followers of Jesus, people who are distraught. They've heard strange things about what some women have seen, but they don't understand it. What they know is Jesus has died, and they are downcast, and, and Jesus just starts walking alongside them and asks, why are you so sad? It seems like that's kind of the story, the question that Jesus wants to ask people. And they have no clue who it is. And, and they talk for a while, and Jesus explains to them why this is what Jesus needed to do. He needed to die. He needed to rise again to be able to save the people. Still, they don't get it. They don't get it until they're sitting at a table, and Jesus takes the bread, and he breaks the bread, and he gives it to them. And in that moment, it's like they have this flashback, and they remember on Thursday night how Jesus said, this is my body given for you. And they realize that as he is extending this bread, it is a sign of his love, that this is the one who gave himself. And in that experience, that moment of experiencing the love of Jesus, the light breaks through and they are brought out of darkness and they see. I think our passage is actually inviting us to ask ourselves a question. How do you understand the resurrection? How do you think of it? There are so many opinions. Every time this time of year, you'll find in the news different people's theories about what's going on. Sometimes people will speak of Easter as this legend, this thing that, superstition even, that we tell ourselves to help us cope with the fear of death. Others will kind of similarly, but in a different way, almost patronizingly say this is this inspirational story that helps us kind of have hope and keep going. Neither of those do I think have any weight. I stake my life on the fact that they are wrong. Others, of course, will say, yes, this is real, this has happened, this is a fact. And yet, I want to suggest that if that is how you see things, and that's as far as it goes for you, it is still not enough. It is entirely possible to have the fact, and yet not have the light of the resurrection shining in our hearts and changing us. Because the only way we will truly begin to see is when we understand that this is more than just a fact. That in the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, he is expressing his love for us. That in the death and resurrection of Jesus, he is expressing his love for you. This is what Mary will be told to tell the disciples. After the light has broken through and she sees, what does Jesus tell Mary? He says to her, now go and tell the disciples. Except that's not actually what he calls them, is it? He says, go and tell my brothers. Go and tell my brothers that my father and their father, my God and their God is where I'm going. Do you hear what he's saying? He's, he's telling this message to tell Mary and to the disciples, saying this is what it's all been about. All of your lives you have been lost. All of your lives because of your failure, because of your sin, you have experienced the hopelessness of darkness, and I came to take care of all of that. 
that my death I have dealt with all of your guilt. I know everything about you and I have taken care of it. It is no more. And in my resurrection, what I have done is I've made it possible to you, for you to come home and to be part of the family of God and experience forever the love of God the Father. That is the message that Jesus sends Mary to go tell because that's what this is all about. And, and it changes Mary. When we see the last scene, what does Mary do? It says that we are told that, that she goes and tells the disciples, I have seen the Lord. This is the completion of her story. She goes from, from sorrow to extraordinary joy. She goes from saying, they have taken my Lord to I have seen the Lord. She goes from darkness into light. It is a complete transformation because that is the power of the resurrection. And I believe that power continues to be at work. I believe that power continues to even be available to us this morning. Perhaps some of you, I wonder, feel the reality of the resurrection is there, but it's removed. Perhaps for all of your life up until this point, you know you've believed, but it just doesn't make a difference for you. Or maybe it's not even darkness. Maybe it's more like twilight, and, and it just kind of feels kind of there, but you don't feel any emotional connection to it. It doesn't change you significantly. And, and what I want you to hear, what I believe God's Word is saying to you this morning, is that in His death and resurrection, Jesus has loved you. That Jesus knows you. He knows everything about you. Everything. And he has not turned away, but he has dealt with all of it on the cross. And he has come to bring you home because he loves you. And even right now, if we have ears to hear, he is calling you by name. And if you hear his voice, whether for the first time or a reminder again and again where Jesus is reminding you that he loves you, we are called simply to hear it, to receive, to believe this reality that we are truly loved by God and that Jesus has truly died for us. And this morning, I'd like to give us even a chance to just, I suppose you could say, sit in that reality and open ourselves up to the power of the resurrection light. So what I'd like us to do is just to spend some time quietly and to name ourselves honestly before God. To name our failures honestly without any hiding, without any pretense, so that as we hear the reality beyond that, we can realize that, that, that we, in all of what we are, have been forgiven and that we are loved. So I'd like to invite you to take a couple minutes in, in quiet confession, and then I will lead us in prayer after that.